And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to The Athletic Baseball Show. Derek Van Riper here with you today with a lot of help from my friends here at The Athletic as we continue going through our series team by team trying to predict what will happen once the lockout eventually comes to an end. The focus of this episode will be on the five teams in the NL Central and I'm lucky enough to be joined by all five of our beat writers over the course of the next 50 minutes or so. Leading off for me today, Will Salmon joins the show as we discuss the NL Central champion Brewers. Will, thanks for making some time today. Oh, it's an honor to be first, man. Happy to do it. Thank the Brewers for uh, winning the division, and and more accurately, uh, thank you for just being up earlier in the day than everybody else. So <laughs> you <laughs> so win. That's all it <laughs> yeah, those those two things. We pick whichever one you like best, I guess, is the the way I would look at it. But uh, the Brewers did a few things prior to. The transaction freeze. Hunter Renfro was acquired in the trade that sent Jackie Bradley Jr. back to Boston. Uh, Pedro Severino was brought in to replace Manny Pena, who moved on to Atlanta. They made a small trade with the Rays to bring in Mike Brasso, who people might remember hit that big home run off of Raldis Chapman in the playoffs uh, in 2020. So uh, just a, a few things that have, have been adjusted. But when I look at what they've done so far, it's kind of keeping the band together maybe with some different names because even Hunter Renfro looks like a one-for-one -one replacement for Avisail Garcia who ended up signing a free agent deal in Miami. Precisely. It's a very, very similar team to the one that you saw that was eliminated by the Braves in the NLDS. Very similar. You're absolutely right. I think Renfro supplies that power that went missing when Garcia left via free agency to the Marlins and they had to replace that. But you could make a, maybe a slight argument that they're a little bit weaker in the lineup just because they ended the season with Eduardo Escobar in the fold. And sure, maybe he wasn't a key cog for them because of the amount of time that he was with the team for, only a rental situation acquired near the trade deadline. So he wasn't somebody that jumps out in your mind, but he was helpful in the sense that he played some first base, played some third, uh, was a switch hitter, so you can mix and match your lineup a little bit. And in, in an ideal circumstance, I feel like somebody like that could benefit them again. Um, but I'm not sure if they're going to go out and get that person or if that person's even obtainable for them just because they're one of their main priorities and something that maybe you alluded to a little bit with just keeping the band back together was the fact that they have so many guys who are arbitration eligible and key guys too. We're talking about Willie Adamas, Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, and of course, Josh Hader, among others, um, who are all due for significant raises. And so even though like that trade with Jackie Bradley Jr. alleviated some, some salary relief there, uh, a lot of that money is probably going to have to be earmarked for those salaries that I mentioned. 
Right. I think when I look at the Brewers for the last couple of off seasons, I've really tried harder than usual to predict what they're going to do. Uh, two winters ago, I was trying to fill in as a, a beat writer, which I, it's not really the job that I'm suited to do. I learned very quickly. You, you have a hard time predicting the David Stearns Brewers from every angle, because in part, like some of the biggest things Stearns has done during his time in Milwaukee come in the form of trades. And a lot of those trades are kind of unexpected trades. I mean, I think even the deal that sent Trent Grisham to San Diego two off seasons ago and, and brought back Luis Urias and Eric Lauer, that was kind of a shocking trade in some ways because it, it didn't, it wasn't the kind of thing that was kicking around in, in columns and podcasts as an obvious trade rumor. And I think if we see a move, it's probably more likely to come on the trade front. Now, you had a piece that you wrote along with some, some of other beat writers just looking at possible proposals that were sent in by readers. And it is really difficult to make good, fair, balanced trades. And I think every time everyone put someone in a deal... It was just one step too far as far as something the Brewers would be unwilling to do because their window is open right now. Clearly, like they have a World Series caliber rotation, but they don't have the offense to go with it. And a lot of the proposals were you know, sending Brandon Woodruff in a blockbuster deal to get a young impact bat. And I can understand where that that logic comes from, but I also don't think that's the path Stearns is going to follow, even though. I couldn't tell you what path he's actually going to go down. I just know he probably won't go down that one. <laughs> I'm with you. And I do think that the trade route is probably where he would go. Uh, just because, again, like I said earlier about the arbitration eligible players, their their willingness to expand beyond what their current payroll situation is, I'm not too sure. But I can't imagine that it's for somebody like, say, a Chris Bryant or that type of guy, right? So then, okay, how do you then obtain a difference maker? Well, the only way to do that then is via trade. And like you said, he's done some some moves that are not really like something that people like throw out there and speculate on because they're really like traditional baseball trades for the most part, like stuff, stuff that you would see like 10, 20, 30 years ago, uh, more so than these days. Because like, if you just look at the two big, two of the bigger trades that he made in 2021 included, uh, acquiring Willie Adamas for two relief pitchers um, and then flipping one of the relievers that he obtained within that trade to the Blue Jays, uh, Trevor Richards, for Rowdy Tellez. And I don't think anybody really saw either of those moves uh, coming down the pipe, but they did make a lot of sense um, at the time and even now as the team is currently constructed. And so I would look for him to, to probably do something similar to that if he were to make a move. And I also think that they have probably more of a willingness than many other clubs in going into the season, feeling like they don't really have to make a move in the winter um, or in spring training and going into the season and letting things play out and then assessing what the market is or what they have to do and remaining flexible that way. And I think that's what led them to that path of acquiring Adamas in the first place, because say if Luis Urias uh, ran with that shortstop job and, and uh, you know played well defensively, would they have acquired Adamas in the first place? Probably not. They probably would have done something differently, I would think. So I think that they have more of a willingness than many other clubs and in going into the season, maybe not feeling 100% with what they have, um, who does, but they are okay with that enough to go into it and then reassess and then make a trade or make an acquisition somehow to fill in the gaps as they occur. 
Yeah, I think this is also a situation where if we get universal DH as a result of the negotiations that are currently ongoing between the league and the Players Association, the Brewers are not currently built for that. I think they would benefit from it in in, in ways of having, you know, Christian Yelich in the lineup but not playing in the outfield some days and really floating that spot with a few players. But I feel like they would go out and find one more bat, whether that's a scrap heap free agent or a minor trade or whatever that is. So I'm kind of curious to see how that plays out because I think that would force at least one extra move beyond whatever could be in the works already. But one guy who I think is going to play a lot is someone you mentioned, Rowdy Telez, at least early in the season. You get the sense they're going to just give him a chance to show what he can do without the pressure of having someone kind of looking over his shoulder. And I feel like in Toronto, there was a really small window for him to make an impact before Vlad Jr. and a lot of those young players came up and, and made things very crowded on that depth chart. Are you a believer that Rowdy Telez can be the answer at first base and end up being one of those minor trade pickups that goes on to have a multi-year impact? I am. I like Telez a lot. And you're right. There's no Vladimir Guerrero Jr. on this team that he has to worry about. I don't think there's one coming up in you know, a handful of years either, for that matter, where, <laughs> you know, if uh, Telez here has a, a golden opportunity, really. Uh, when you look at him being somebody who's just entered his first year of being arbitration eligible, so he's in the first year of that process, they uh, got a deal already done for him in, in that regard, so he's already taken care of there for this year. Um, he has a golden opportunity in front of him to run with this, and maybe they do acquire somebody from the right-handed side to platoon with him down the road, or maybe they acquire somebody like a Nelson Cruz for that matter, or, or assign somebody like Nelson Cruz who would fill in that DH role. And, and that's that, um, and, and really make an impact in that lineup. Um, and then that would still have the door open for Teles to claim most of the first base share, um, perhaps with a right-handed batter like Broso or maybe Keston Hira, if he shows up in spring training, hitting the ball well, um, he would always be an option, I guess. But right now, like that's it. Um, it it's Telez, and I think that he has a lot to like um, in his profile. He he crushes balls. He hits balls hard. He hits balls far. Um, there's not a whole lot of strikeout as much as as maybe there used to be. He really made an effort over the past two or three years to cut down on that, dating back to that really good season. I guess it was a shortened season, but still, it was a solid solid. Uh, you know, spurt of games for him with the Blue Jays, and he made some strides. And I think that they were real. And it's just he didn't get the opportunity in 2021 to really show that with the Blue Jays because of a breakout performance in an MVP type season from Vlad Guerrero Jr. So he was, you know, sort of jettisoned to Triple A and just stayed there for a while, latching on with with uh, the Brewers. And I liked what I saw. I thought also that he played a pretty adequate defense at first base. Not that that's that big of a deal but it helps his cause that he's improving there and maybe he's not as um much of a liability as people originally may have thought and i, I also think that he is better against left-handed pitching than some people think as well like his platoon splits are not crazy um and sure they're small sample size so i don't want to get too carried away with that because you don't really know yet but it just from like what we've seen so far he showed me an ability to at least handle his own against them. I'm not saying he's going to uh, bat an even 300 or anything, but he, he's shown at least a, a pretty solid profile to believe in and to at least make you curious of, hmm, like what, what could happen if we gave this guy 500 or 550 plate appearances? 
as you look at the core of position players, do you think center field is actually the spot that could be the biggest weakness? I mean, I think Lorenzo Cain, when he's healthy, is still a good center fielder, a guy you can play in the bottom third of the lineup. You're still getting great center field defense, but I feel like that's still a spot where they could be vulnerable. Or do you feel like Tyrone Taylor is kind of the built-in depth option who can step up and, and handle everyday duty if, if that opportunity arises? You know, that's an interesting question because if you look across the board and you look at their lineup, like you have some guys who have some pretty solid floors where it's like, okay, worst case scenario, uh, things aren't so bad across the board. It's just the ceilings aren't very high for a lot of these guys, like Colton Wong at second base, uh, offensively at least, Omar Nervais at catcher. Um, we talked about Telez, Maria's kind of a wild card, Adamas is kind of a wild card, and then the outfield with Yelich, Renfro, and maybe... Caden Taylor, like you're saying, you more or less know what you're getting, even in a worst case scenario. I think we saw that a lot with some of even their, their better players, like Christian Yelich. Okay, like we, we understand like what that is now. Um, and we also know what it could be, perhaps, too. Um, so there's that. So uh, I say all that to suggest that center field may not be like, it's not as if it's a huge, like glaring weakness or a glaring hole i feel like that they may be okay with the production that they may get from a tyrone taylor um and the combination of lorenzo kane when healthy and you know uh, a prediction i would say that maybe tyrone taylor plays more games and, and sees more action in center field than lorenzo kane this year just because all we've heard since the end of the season is how much they believe in tyrone taylor and how much of a factor he's going to be in the upcoming season i i don't I don't think that should be discredited. I think that when somebody like David Stearns is saying that, there, there's probably some truth in that because he's not somebody that's often going to single out players or you know make a make a note about players unless he really means something. And I think he's suggesting that there there is a big role to be had for Tyrone Taylor, and they do believe in him. And um, it's hard to really know what to expect from him because he hasn't played that full season in the majors yet. But if you just like sort of look at the snapshot of a season that he had in 2021 and maybe project it out a little bit, you could see a path that he could maybe hit like around 20 home runs with, I don't know, like a 265 average and like a, you know, mid 300 on base percentage, something like that, that, that gets you a respectable OPS. So it, it wouldn't be bad. He plays an adequate defense, um, runs well in the bases. There's a lot to like with Tyrone Taylor. I think essentially he's probably a, a better team's fourth outfielder, of course. But if he ends up being the guy, we'll see. It's very similar to Telez, where he shows you a lot of things that you like, um, but we just haven't seen it over the course of a full season. So it's one of those things where until you see that, you don't really know how much you should buy in yet. Got one question for you about the pitching and just thinking about how that could prompt some sort of move once we get back to having transactions again. Aaron Ashby, kind of a, a wild card. I mean, I think he he's on the big league staff in some capacity, whether that's as a reliever initially and then supporting the rotation later if there's an injury or maybe he earns a spot outright. And maybe he's the guy that gives them the flexibility to trade a back-end guy. Like, I could see... Adrian Hauser and a prospect going somewhere to fill a need potentially. Everybody needs pitching, especially controllable pitching. 
I think there would be teams interested in Bryce Terang or or Garrett Mitchell among a few other players that the Brewers could be positioned to move. But to me, it all comes down to Ashby and, and what they want to do with him. So uh, how do you see Ashby kind of fitting in and does his presence give them the luxury of moving Adrian Hauser or Eric Lauer or somebody else if the right deal comes along? Yeah, I think those are their three trade chips right there. Lauer, Hauser, and Ashby. I think Lauer and Hauser have shown it at the big league level now, and they looked really, really good last year doing so. And so, if I'm another team, I'm interested in those guys. Uh, I don't know how much. I don't know how much the Brewers would get in return for that. It would depend maybe on that prospect that you suggested, and who would be included. Um, and maybe you net somebody that's either going to, like you said, fill uh, fill a problem. I, I just don't know if you're going to get a, a significant guy or a real true difference maker unless you include. Aaron Ashby. And I think that it's no surprise to a lot of people that he was the guy that the Brewers heard about a lot at the trade deadline last year. Like they were getting a bunch of calls on him and rightfully so. And they decided to hold tight on to him. Um, and he, it worked out really. I mean, he, he's shown that he could pitch at the big league level and, and pitch well. It's one of those things where I believe that they'll probably go into the season with him stretched out as a starter and it will be very similar to how it played out last season where the days off more or less dictated how many times they went with a five man or a six man. Um, I think with who they have in their rotation and just how careful they like to be with those guys that they wouldn't mind going to a six man. If it's in a stretch of a long say road trip or just a long track of games where they haven't had a day off in a while why not do that and otherwise he could be dispatched to the bullpen um like he was so i I think that there's some flexibility there i think he'll probably make a push for it um he looked really sharp in spring training last year and if he does that again it'll be hard to ignore uh but you're right he is the trade ship um in a perfect world for the brewers i think they would have maybe even made a move already um with their prospects to obtain a star it didn't happen that way. And I think that they're willing to do that this time around once they're allowed to make such moves. It's just, it has to be a right difference maker. Like we talked about earlier, it probably has to be somebody with some uh, team control for a couple of years. That's been a big thing for David Stearns while he's led the Brewers is if he's going to make a trade, it's going to be for a younger player with some, uh, with some years that the Brewers can have him for, not just a rental type in a big way. And so those are also things to consider. But yeah, Ashby's at the top of the list and um, definitely a pivotal player one way or the other for the Brewers. Flexibility continues to be the word that defines the David Stearns era in Milwaukee. I think a lot of Brewers fans out there are hoping that it's championship someday. And, and maybe, maybe the flexibility they've maintained will allow them to get there at some point. Again, that pitching is World Series caliber. He is Will Salmon. He is the Athletics Brewers beat writer. Read his stuff on The Athletic. Give him a follow on Twitter at Will Salmon. Thanks again, Will, for joining me today. Hey, right, Tom, Derek. Enjoyed it. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And we continue through the NL Central. Now we bring on Katie Wu, our Cardinals writer here at The Athletic. Cardinals have done a few things, really one big thing prior to all the transactions stopping. That, of course, was the addition of Steven Matz to the rotation. But the big question, is there more to come? Katie, how's it going? I'm good, Derek. How are you doing? Really well. I think with the Steven Matz signing, that was one of those moves where I was like, hey, hey, good. Good for him. He got a four-year deal. But I looked at that and said, okay, the Cardinals can't only add Steven Matz, right? I mean, he fills a need. Innings are a clear need for them, but are they done with the pitching staff now that they have Steven Matz in tow? You know, that's a question that I know it's early on, but could be season-defining. The Cardinals have had no shortage of rotation issues over the last two seasons, specifically in 2021 when they were missing two of their projected opening day starters by opening day, and then lost three starters in a 10-day period by the summer. And that ultimately, that lack of rotation depth pretty much derailed their their chance at a division title pretty early on in the summer. So locking up Steven Matz, locking up a starting pitcher in general, but especially Steven Matz, became of the top priority for the Cardinals front office in the offseason. It was identified early on in November in the uh, general manager meetings that the Cardinals were going to target starting pitching. Steven Matz kind of fit their prototype of what they were looking for. The Cardinals have a very right-handed dominant rotation in Jack Flaherty, Adam Wainwright, Miles Michaelis, and Dakota Hudson. Steven Matz is a left-hander. Good sinker ball, good ground ball rate. That plays well with the, you know, five gold glovers in that starting defense of the Cardinals. It's a good fit. But the question is, like you said, Derek, is it enough? You know, there's when you look at the rotation, there's a question mark for each starter and they're valid. You know, Adam Wainwright is Adam Wainwright. And he had one heck of a season last year. And I say all the time, you know, you probably shouldn't doubt Adam Wainwright at this point in his career, but he will be 40 next year, and you always have to consider age no matter who the person is. Now, Jack Flaherty, Dakota Hudson, and Miles Michaelis are all coming off big, substantial injuries. And, you know, it's it's always a little bit concerning because you you don't quite know how these, these injuries are going to play out, if they're even going to be a factor at all, how much they're going to limit guys, you know, how they're going to respond and their season's back. So there are some question marks there. And, of course, with Steven Matz, it is, can he adjust to this team? Is it enough depth? So... I'm looking at the Cardinals and I'm in the front office. Whenever this lockout ends, I'm still pursuing pitching depth, whether that's in the bullpen or another starter. They have a couple of guys in the minors coming up. They think it can be enough. But as we saw last year, sometimes it's just not. Yeah, this team was really built on on defense. I mean, that was the the key to their success, uh, I think, especially at the end of 2021. But that was their bread and butter all season long. And by projections, they project to be right in the mix for a playoff spot again, just in terms of war. Their position player war is excellent. Their pitching staff is where the weakness is right now. I think the thing I look at when I see this group of position players, I see Edmundo Sosa and Paul DeYoung kind of battling for that shortstop role. And maybe they share it. Maybe they move Tommy Edmund around. There's ways to make the pieces fit. But I start to wonder if the Cardinals have an appetite for spending money if they could be a sneaky team that could go out and possibly add someone like Trevor Story, who I think I've added to about eight different teams over the course of the series already. Uh, but do you think the Cardinals have a, a splashy move like that, whether that be Story or someone else to add even more to this group of position players? 
You know, I, I hate to be a, a Debbie Downer if I if I have to say that. Um, but I don't think the Cardinals front office has any splashy moves planned via free agency. That's kind of typically been how the front office and president of baseball operations, John Mazalek, has operated in his tenure as you know, it's more, I don't want to say cheap. This Cardinals front office is not cheap. This organization is not cheap, but they do prefer to operate conservatively. Usually their big splashes come via trades like Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado. I think if the Cardinals are looking at any big, big splashes, it's not going to come during this offseason. It may, or it may come in the trade deadline, just seeing where this team is around July. Now, Trevor Story, of course, is a very tantalizing free agent player, no matter what team you're on. I don't think he'd fit in for the Cardinals, though, because they have so many rotating pieces. You mentioned Paul DeYoung, who the Cardinals are really hoping his, and very confident he'll have a bounce-back season in 2022. And Mundo Sosa shined in his role last year. Tommy Edmond, what does he do in his first season as a regular starting position player? He wins a gold glove from the incumbent Colton Wong, who he essentially replaced as the starting second baseman in 2021. They have Nolan Gorman, their top prospect, a top 100 prospect in baseball, that's going to debut I would say, you know, before the before the trade deadline, there's there's no question that Nolan Gorman will debut if he stays healthy in 2022. They have lots of pieces there and they don't want to necessarily block any of these prospects that they've been counting on for, you know, 2022 has long been estimated as their big window to push to go for it. So the front office is, is kind of erring on the side of caution is if we think we have enough players to cover the middle infield, we think we have enough players in the prospect pipeline to kind of stay away from those big news hot stove breaking acquisitions like like Trevor Story. Um, I, I do think that they're going when when baseball resumes, that they'll operate still conservatively, but they still have a couple more moves left, specifically pitching. I still think even with the math edition, that's their biggest priority. Yeah, as far as the the other prospects go, I think people might be wondering, is Matthew Libertor an option to step up and, and fill a vacancy in the rotation? Because if you add Libertor to the group of starters they have, you mentioned Flaherty and Wainwright. We talked about Matt's a healthy Miles Michaelis, that's five starters right there, plus Dakota Hudson's around. Whoever doesn't get into the rotation out of guys like Hudson and Jake Woodford and Jordan Hicks, they can all go to the bullpen. So if you think the bullpen is thin right now, they can help solve the bullpen problem if they think Libertor is ready. What's the sense that you get about his possible arrival? Yeah, that's a great point. There's a lot of questions about starting pitching depth and bullpen depth, but a lot of these questions will get answered throughout the spring, whenever that is. Uh, Libertor is like Gorman expected to debut in 2022. I don't think we'd see him before Gorman unless it's an emergency, but he is their top pitching prospect. And like John Mozilla excited during the trade deadline last season, they're not willing to rush up their top prospects for urgency or, and a, you know, even when they were down to just two starting pitchers for a week, there was no talk of, of bringing Libertor up. That's how high they value him, how big of a piece they seem that they, they think that he's going to factor into. When you look at guys that are on the fringe, like Jake Woodford, like Jordan Hicks, you know, that kind of alleviates a little bit of the stress of the lack of depth in the bullpen. I know that Jake Woodford has been pegged as kind of the, the sixth man in the rotation for now, someone that's willing, that is able to, to pitch both long relief and spot start. He shined in that role in September for the Cardinals last year, was really underrated in that spot. Um, so I think, you know, for, for the Cardinals' sake, they feel like they have enough starting pitching to start the season because they have Flaherty Wainwright, Mats, Michaelis, and Hudson. They have Woodford available. They have a couple other guys that, you know, they're going to experiment with Jordan Hicks. They're going to experiment with Alex Reyes. And if those experiments fall by the wayside, then they have guys like Libertor that they can rely on, but only if he's ready. So it kind of is a little bit of a gamble here, but I think that the front office thinks that, you know, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to play it safe and hope they just, you know, 
have their fingers crossed. They don't run into the same problems as last year. I keep wondering, looking at, at the Brewers and Cardinals as the two teams that at least currently stand out as the favorites to, to win the division in 2022, if those two teams are just kind of looking at each other, waiting for the other to make a move that will force them to go do something else. Because as both teams are built, they look pretty even. They both look like they're good enough to get the job done, and they have an advantage over the Cubs and the Reds, who with the right tinkering could actually end up in the conversation as well. The other big change in St. Louis, of course, Mike Schilt out, Oliver Marmol in. Uh, it doesn't count as a player transaction, but how do you think that changes what the Cardinals do on a day-to-day basis? Is there any tangible way that you could imagine that things will be a lot different? You no, know, Derek, it seems like years ago that Marmol was hired. That's how slow that this winter has <laughs> been. Um, but yeah, you know, I think that there is, Plenty of warranted skepticism about Ollie taking over as manager. There was not a lot of clarity from the organization on why Mike Schilt was dismissed. And to cite philosophical differences and then turn right around to Mike Schilt's former right-hand man, it kind of raises the question of, well, what were the differences? But the thing about, about Ollie Marmol is that the Cardinals were always confident he would be a manager at some point. Now, did they expect him to be the 2022 St. Louis Cardinals manager? No, they were honest in saying that, you know, I, as the weeks kind of came after Mike Schultz leaving. Um, but the thing that I, th- if, if I'm going to really think of one difference about the two is I think that Ollie will be a lot more willing to incorporate platoons and play the splits. I mean, the Cardinals have such a diverse lineup. There's lots of things they can do. They're going to have a, a platoon at shortstop with Paul Young and Munda Sosa. You know, that spring is going to dictate who starts, but I imagine we'll see a pretty heavy split of either. Tommy Edmond, like you mentioned, can get slotted all over the place. They have their outfield of Tyler O'Neill, Harrison Bader, and Dylan Carlson that I believe is going to be one of the best defensive outfielders in the league. And Lars Newbar that can come in and slot in when needed. Will there be a DH? We don't know. But if there is a DH in the National League, they have plenty of guys that they can rest, whether that's a half day of rest for Nolan Arnado or Paul Goldschmidt or Yadier Molina. All guys that can really benefit from that. That's where I think we'll see a little bit of differences from Marmol taking over. But other than that, I really don't think it'll be too different. You're retaining almost the majority of 2021 lineup. Um, and the Cardinals are projecting to be one of the better teams in that not so competitive NL Central. But things change. So for now, I'm expecting things to be mostly business as usual, but maybe an emphasis on not as much consistency in the same everyday lineup, but kind of rotating guys in and out depending on what's needed. Yeah, I think the other thing that's also kind of lingering here with the Cardinals, I mean, Tyler O'Neill took that huge step forward last year. Even if he doesn't sustain all of that, maybe Dylan Carlson makes the leap this year. There's other ways for this team to get to get better with some of the the internal pieces that are already in place. So again, not a team that necessarily has to do a lot once the lockout is over, but uh, Certainly looks primed to make another run toward October. Katie, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Derek, thanks so much. It was nice to talk about baseball. Hopefully we can do it more soon. I hope so. I hope it's more like weeks away than uh, than months away. (laughs) (laughs) Let's head out to what I think is maybe the most beautiful ballpark in the entire league, but at least the most beautiful ballpark in the NL Central. Let's talk Pirates, and to do that, we'll bring on Rob Beertemple, our Pirates beat writer. Rob, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey man, how's it going? We're uh, we're hanging in there here in Pittsburgh as usual in the off season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, winter in Pittsburgh probably a lot like winter in Wisconsin, and I, I got in a lot of those before moving out to the West Coast. So I I, I don't I don't envy the time of year and, and where we're at. And to make it worse, of course, the 
the ongoing lockout, you know, putting a little damper on on the upcoming baseball season. But let's stay positive. And (laughs) every time I get to catch up with you about the Pirates, I, I feel like things are a little better than they were the last time we talked. And maybe this year will be one of the bigger steps forward, not the biggest step forward. They're not a playoff team this year. I think we can be realistic about that. Uh, Before things stopped, though, they made a few moves. They brought back Yoshi Tsutsugo. They -hmm. added Jose Quintana. They added Roberto Perez. They made a trade, uh, sending Jacob Stallings to Miami and getting back Zach Thompson for some some interesting innings, potentially, in the rotation. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of like business as usual as far as the types of players they're (laughs) adding. And of those guys, like, do you see anyone in there that you're like, yeah, actually, we should be excited about this player because of either things we saw last year in Pittsburgh or at a previous stop, like where, where do you fall on the addition so far? Ooh, uh, excite. I don't know if, I don't know if I would use the word excited, um, <laughs> necessarily. I mean, bringing back Yoshi is something that the fans, uh, at least, you know, a lot of the fans seemed to want. He had a pretty good run in like a month and a half at the end of the season when the pirates basically, you know, claimed him off the waiver waiver wire for, you know, no cost. And, he played in 50 odd games, hit eight home runs, you know, and that's, you know, something that when you have a lineup like the pirates do anybody hitting eight home runs in six weeks becomes, you know, a star. <laughs> so there was a lot of clamoring to bring him back and they, they brought him back for next year. He'll play first base. They're not going to rule out putting him in the outfield, especially since now with Greg Polanco gone, there's a big gaping hole in right field, but having seen Yoshi in the outfield, I would argue that probably keeping him at first base is the way to go. It's just, especially with that, you know, the 21 foot high Clemente wall behind him. It's, it's difficult. To, it's a difficult spot to play and being unfamiliar with it probably made him look worse than it really is. But I mean, he's, you know, he is what he is. He's a guy who is still trying to get some traction in his career. It um, has some power, which is what the Pirates lack, and that so that's a good move. It's it's not a great move. It's not a franchise cornerstone, but it's it's a, it's a good move for next year. And Quintana is a guy who's on the downward arc of his career, left-hander. They're basically hoping that he can get off to a great start, and maybe they can flip him at the deadline and get you know and get a little bit of something for him. Uh, Roberto Perez was a was a smart signing after trading Jacob Stallings because he's you know they're both Gold Glove catchers. Um, Perez has had some injury problems and that kind of hampered him the past couple of years in Cleveland. So we'll see, you know, where he is, you know, now that he's, a, you know, a year or two removed from those issues, can he still be a good defensive catcher? Uh, you know, they're not counting on him for any offense. They really didn't count on Stallings for offense. Although there were times when they batted Jacob cleanup. That's all things were last year. <laughs> so all in all, you know, three moves that, in, in most markets don't even make a ripple, but here in Pittsburgh, you know, that they, you know, that's what passes for significant off season acquisitions. I think where pirates fans are probably at least a little optimistic, <laughs> if they're optimistic at all, it, it comes from the, <laughs> the internal improvements. It's guys like O'Neill Cruz getting yeah. prolonged opportunities. He didn't really play much at AAA last year, so they could reasonably send him down to AAA for a month or two months and just make sure that, there aren't any other holes in his swing that more advanced pitching will kind of exploit on a regular basis. But how many of their young prospects do you see taking on prominent roles before we get to even the middle of the season? Because I think that shapes the types of, of other 
lottery tickets they might be interested in on the free agent mm-hmm. scrap heap. You know, if they have expectations that some of these guys are going to be contributing two or three months into the season, they're not necessarily going to want to fill those spots and spend four or five million dollars on any more players to be those holdover types. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's you mentioned Cruz, and he's an interesting guy because you know he the, the folks here have been waiting for a long time to see him at the big league level, and just a handful of at bats at Triple A, he, he was doing well at Double A, and yeah, everybody talks about the fact that he's you know ten feet tall, <laughs> and there's never been a shortstop as tall as him, um, and that's true. And I saw him play. I mean, not a ton because like you know. But I did go out to Altoona, which is just a two-hour drive from Pittsburgh. So I saw him play probably a half dozen or more games at Double A last year. And, you know, defensively, there's something, you know, he moves well, gets the balls. But the, the, the throwing arm is a cannon, but it's erratic. And I think the thought is that, you know, some of that, maybe it's the height. Some of it is just that's, that's just his style of play. Maybe he, I think he probably fits better in right field. I think he's the answer to their Gregory Polanco void out there in right field. And it's, it's funny. They were just getting ready to start playing him in the outfield at Altoona when he got hurt last year. He was just beginning to shag flies pregame. Um, when it, like, after a day or two of that, he got hurt and missed, I think it was about four weeks or so uh, of, of the season, if I remember correctly. So that really, when he came back, it was too late in the year to start up that outfield experiment. So that really, for me, is the key as to when they call him up is how serious are they about moving him to the outfield and how quickly can they get him adjusted? And that's going to require some playing time, you know, at AAA just to to get his feet under him because he's never played outfield at any level. Are there other guys? There are other guys, you know, I think they still have to sort through, you know, some some guys like Hoy Park, uh, you know, and and, and, and other guys they got at various points of the season, Anthony Alford, guys who – aren't necessarily cornerstone pieces, but how do they fit next year? Michael Chavis is a good example. So he, can he be a regular second baseman? Um, can he be a guy that they can count on? He has a little bit of pop off the bench. They need to solve those questions first with those guys that are closer to the majors, and then they can start looking at the guys, the bigger prospects, most of whom are at single and double A. Yeah, I mean, I think about like Nick Gonzalez probably needing mm. to have his his finishing year in the minor leagues. It doesn't seem yeah. out of the question that he could play in the big leagues this year, given his age, that he was a college guy. If he's tearing it up, sure. But I think <laughs> you want to see what Tucapita Marcano and Rodolfo Castro and Diego yeah. Castillo and some of those guys do. And I think my little glimmer of hope, and again, I come at baseball from a fantasy lens first, even though this isn't a fantasy <laughs> podcast. Those guys are more interesting than some of the guys the Pirates have been pushing into playing time in the past. There are little things you can like about those players. I think you're more likely to find future pieces of a playoff team in players like that. So I think, again, I I haven't had to suffer as a fan of this team for a long time. (laughs) So I come at it from a totally different perspective. But I do think we could end up with a few surprises who end up emerging that people don't necessarily talk about either because they've They've lost prospect status. They never quite cracked a top 100 list, but they were they were good players who were acquired in the last couple of years by Ben Charrington in that front office who actually could make an impact, at least as as regulars at some point in the not so distant future. Yeah, Tukapita is, is an intriguing guy. I'm glad you mentioned him because, you know, they the Padres started him, I believe, in the majors last year in opening day. They had some injuries and whatnot. And really, he really it just didn't click for him there. And he went he was sent back down. And then when the Pirates got him, I kind of got the sense talking to Ben Charrington and some other folks in the in the organization 
that they wanted to get a look at him in Pittsburgh before the year was done. But he, he, the offensive struggles really just continued for him at AAA, and they ended up keeping him down there the rest of the year. I think this is a you know a big spring training whenever that happens, whether it's a late spring or early summer training. Um, but a big season, I think, for him because he's a guy who there's a lot of potential there. Um, he, he's still – it's hard to define what he can be as a hitter, I think. And, and we we'll have to see you – know, some of that is just his body size and, and, and his approach to the plate. I think the Pirates really need to figure out what they have with him. They have so many middle infielders, um, you know, Xihuan Bay, Nick Gonzalez, uh, Lyover Piguero, um, who I think is probably the shortstop of the future with this club after Cruz moves to the outfield, you know, they got to start this year really getting a sense as, like you said, who can be those pieces, not even necessarily the starters, but the guys who can be key role players, cameo guys on a club that makes a run at a playoff spot and, you know, or division title or whatever. This is really the time they need to start figuring that kind of stuff out. And so for a guy like Tuka Pita, who has all the potential in the world, but just hasn't put it together yet, you know, it, it, it needs to start happening this year. Yeah, and I think if you're in Pittsburgh right now, you're dictating your own timetable because there's not many spots that are accounted for for the long haul, at least on the big league roster. I mean, it's Cabrian Hayes among that group of position players, and mm -hmm. that might be about the end of the list right now of guys that are <laughs> going to be there for a while. Uh, in the rotation, there's opportunities too. I mean, Rowanzi Contreras and Miguel Yajure, both part of that mm -hmm. uh, trade they made with the Yankees uh, about a year ago now. I could see both of those guys in the rotation, maybe even from, from day one. Is that too optimistic? No, I think, I mean, the rotation is probably still the, the biggest, you know, I don't want to say weakness, but it's the area with, with the most room to grow, the most opportunity. And you know, in some ways, yeah, the biggest weakest weakness of this organization right now. They don't have a, a lot of real stud prospects, even in the minors. Uh, guys you can look at as front of the rotation guys. When they got your hurry, and, um, and Contreras, you know, scouts were telling me that those guys, yeah, they project as maybe a four or a five in a big league rotation. Contreras just had, you know, a little bit of a breakout last year. I mean, it, it, he picked up a couple of miles on his fastball. Uh, and that Velo, really, he became a strikeout god at Double A Altoona until he went down with some, what, you know, they said only was forearm soreness. And you hear that and, you know, you start thinking the nuclear bomb of pitcher injuries, you know, you hurry the same thing. He had a forearm injury. Neither one of them ended up missing any time. Neither one was, you know, a Tommy John candidate, the Pirates say. But the Pirates are going to have to be careful. They've been careful with how, what they're doing this winter as far as winter ball and whatnot. They're going to have to be careful with those guys coming into the season to see exactly where they are health-wise. But no, I think you're right. Both of those guys could be in the opening day rotation because there's really you know, the, the guy who was supposed to be the, the stud of the rotation is Mitch Keller, and it just hasn't happened. And I, I really think this this could be the, you know, the make or break season for Mitch with the Pirates, you know, going forward. I think I'm closing in now on three years with The Athletic doing podcasts here, mm -hmm. fantasy, real, all, all different kinds. And I think Mitch Keller is the player I've been asked about the most. <laughs> <laughs> People ask all the time, what's wrong with Mitch Keller? Why can't the Pirates yeah. fix Mitch Keller? And it's like at a certain point, I don't know if it's even on the Pirates. I don't know if it's failed development on their part or if it's just, you know, an improper evaluation at the beginning. I, I, it's it's mm -hmm. frustrating at this point. I, I'm as I'm as confused as most people uh, that it hasn't at least improved to the point where he's a consistent 
back end starter. I don't that was, that was a low end expectation a few years ago. I don't think that was an unrealistic expectation even going into last season. So I think you're right. Crossroads time for him indeed. Uh, but yeah, as we said earlier, not really a team that you expect to do a lot because of, of the young talent. If they make more moves, it's going to be a lot like the guys that we were talking about that they've already added at the beginning, the uh, kind of underwhelming signings that maybe there's something that these guys do well. And maybe it's an opportunity for players like that to play more in Pittsburgh than they would play if they had signed on more competitive teams. So I think with mm-hmm. Sugo, great example up top of someone that we could be kind of excited to watch and hey, maybe the Pirates are at least a pesky last place team this year. I think that would be the small step forward. He is Rob Beer Temple. He covers the Pirates for The Athletic. Follow him on Twitter at Rob Beer Temple. I'll put the Twitter handles all in the show (laughs) description so you don't have to try and memorize how names are spelled while we're driving. Rob, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, no problem, man. Anytime. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB Show. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct TV satellite free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get direct TV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream direct TV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit directtv.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Well, now we head to Chicago. Sahadev Sharma joins me to talk about the Cubs. Cubs have made a few moves already prior to the lockout. I think the most surprising of those moves was the addition of Marcus Stroman. Sahadev, thank you for joining me. Of course. Thanks for having me. Stroman is a guy, if you gave me, you said you give 10 guesses, pick 10 teams where you think Marcus Stroman will sign as a free agent. In this offseason, I would not have had the Cubs in that group of 10. How surprised were you when that news broke that he was actually going to the Cubs? You know, it, it was pretty surprising, and, and there are multiple reasons why. First of all, Jed Hoyer, anyone near the top, David Ross, everyone, towards the end of the season and once offseason hit, they, were, they couldn't be any clearer that starting pitching was number one at the top of their list one, two, three, four, five, starting pitching. They needed more starting pitching. It's the reason they hit the trade deadline the way they did. Uh, you can the, the offense was uh, rough as well, even with all those stars, but the p- starting pitching was a disaster. They had to add starting pitching. So we knew that. We knew that add starting pitching. 
Jed was adamant that they'd spend too, but you had to read between the lines. He wasn't going to go a ton of years. He was never going to go five, six, seven, eight years with any of these guys. Uh, And then the one thing that Hoyer kept hammering home was they need more swing and miss, especially in the starting rotation. So for me, it it made sense that, okay, they'll spend, they'll look for two year guys, three year guys, uh, you know, but they're not going to go four or five years, especially with pitching. Uh, and and they're going to look for that upside guy. They're going to look for the next Robbie Ray and Kevin Gaussman. They're not going to go after Robbie Ray and Kevin Gaussman. That's how I looked at it, right? Marcus Stroman didn't make sense because he's not a he's not a bat misser. So when they got him, uh, that was the ultimate. This is too much value for us to pass up type uh, move. Hoyer still says, yeah, we we need we need a swing and miss likely going to have have to happen out of the bullpen because right now they've picked up Wade Miley. They've added Stroman and they have Hendricks at the top as well. So that's three guys, solid guys that you can likely count on to give you. I mean, you look at their recent careers, Hendricks this past season, let's assume that that was a blip in the, in the road. These guys are consistent. If nothing else, they're consistent that, you know, you're going to get around a league average, in, in Stroman's case, significantly better ERA. In Hendricks' case, usually much better than league average ERA. So you got three guys you can rely on. A lot of we'll we'll figure out what it is. Uh, but yeah, that was it was a little surprising in that sense. And I think it really it it was a good message to send before the lockout. Uh, for the fans, especially, I think fans after the deadline, it's not like fans were up in arms. Like, how could you do this as much as we're never going to spend again is how is how fans kind of looked (laughs) at it. Uh, They uh, most fans, at least athletic readers, I think, believe uh, understood why that why those moves were made. They were all impending free agents. They weren't going to sign extensions. That deal had to be made. You want to criticize everything that happened before the deadline? Yeah, that makes that's fair game. But it's really hard to criticize going all in on that trade deadline because you got to move these guys and get something for them because they weren't coming back and not not the way Jed Hoyer is running things right now. The addition of Stroman, it surprised me for a couple of reasons because I thought he would come in with a contract closer to the likes of Robbie Ray and Kevin Gossman just in terms of years and dollars. And I think he fell a little short in both, especially the years. The Cubs are, by projection right now, at least when the transaction stopped, they were a bottom five team in terms of, of team war. If you add Marcus Stroman on a multi-year deal and you go out and you get Clint Frazier as kind of a savvy, I think, kind of bargain bin sort of free agent, you get Jan Gomes for some more catching depth, it looks more like you intend to compete in some fashion. And if you want to compete, I feel like you still need to find eight to ten more wins somewhere. And there actually are some impact guys still out there, so... Could a very optimistic Cubs fan actually have a realistic hope that the Cubs are in somehow on on Carlos Correa or even Trevor Story? Like I, I just I wonder if there has to be more to come because the additions to this point don't really make sense without one more big addition. Yeah, so I'll say this. So just solely on Correa, is there a chance? Of course there's a chance, but I think it comes down to value and his market i think i really think the boris uh uh him switching to boris that throws a wrench in things boris isn't gonna look for 
any sort of deal here or, or he's not going to it's not going to be a team friendly deal i don't think it ever was going to be but i think if there was a 0.1 chance now that's gone right uh, of of it being a team friendly deal now what the cubs can do because it doesn't look at least right now from what we understand it there's not like the big teams aren't really gonna go all in on korea it doesn't sound like the yankees are doesn't sound like the red sox are and the Dodgers, I think, can change their minds quickly, you know, so I, I wouldn't rule them out, but it sounded like they weren't going in that direction. So with those three teams out with the bit, I mean, the, the big spenders like uh, for this offseason, Detroit and Seattle have their shortstops, right? Uh, so who who's going to go after him? I think it it makes sense, right? As a fit for the Cubs. Now, it, their biggest need now, which what what we just discussed, it was pitching, right? And they didn't get those strikeout pitchers. They're not going to go after a ton of strikeout pitchers for the starting rotation. So what they have to do is upgrade that infield defense. What better way to do that than getting the platinum gold glove winner at shortstop, right? And then you 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 kill two birds with one stone by adding him and getting a middle of the order bat, something else they need. If you're looking at priorities right now, those are two of their probably top three, if not top two priorities. It's adding a middle of the order power bat and add an upgrading infield defense. You can do that with Correa. You can make the argument that next offseason, there's not a lot of attractive free agents. So so this is the offseason to spend unless you're going to wait for Shohei Otani uh, what is that? Two off seasons from now, which, <laughs> hey, I, I think the Cubs will be big spenders during that offseason and, and the offseason after that. I think that's when they really see their window of like we're a powerhouse with a ton of prospects coming up. I think that's when they see that really opening. But what you said before about uh, they're they're not punting. Right. I think that's what the Stroman signing says. They're not punting. So, the, yes. Are they are they going to go into this season as a no doubt contender? No. They're not going to go into the season as a no doubt contender. They need to upgrade. They need to add a few more uh, quality pieces. I just don't think. I just wouldn't say confidently that they're. What you? What did you say? Eight to ten wins. I wouldn't say that they're going to go into next season. I'd be very surprised. And and I'd say I'd be surprised if they add Correa. Just because in general, I think it's a surprise if you had any. If you win out on any big free agent, right? You should never be favorite a uh, favorite uh, i shouldn't say favorite you should never assume that you're going to even if you are the perceived favorite you should never assume that that's going to get done they're not the perceived favorite it's a long shot but they're going to upgrade in different areas i'd be very surprised if they go into the season we say that's a no doubt playoff roster what i do think they'll do is they'll put together a roster that says you know what if this clicks and if this guy hits his potential if nico horner's uh, like stays healthy if nick madrigal stays healthy Wilson Contreras, if they can rest him enough and, and he turns into a much better bat with the DH uh, and the pitching clicks and, and they continue to do what they've done year after year and find the hidden gems in the bullpen and maybe add a veteran there to kind of stabilize things, then yeah, maybe they sneak into, especially if there's an extra playoff spot, maybe they sneak in, right? Or maybe they turn into, they're not going to turn into the Giants. I think that that's a once every, <laughs> you know, five years type situation, but maybe they surprise enough that they can compete for the division or compete for one of those wildcard spots. So I think that's what you have to look for. And yeah, the Correa is the dream. 
keep dreaming. I say, fans, I like, I love optimistic fans. I wouldn't bet on it, but stay optimistic. Yeah, I mean, even if you're looking at kind of a, like one year free agent types, maybe that's someone like Andrew McCutcheon joining the outfield. You could make additions like that if you're looking at a two or three year guy. Maybe you can get a, a reasonable deal on Michael Conforto, who I think could be an impact bat. Like they, they have enough needs where what they go at is kind of flexible, and they can almost let the market come to them and just take the best available free agent that didn't get the big deal they were hoping somewhere else. I think they could be perfectly positioned for something like that. I'm really curious to see if they can find a way to get like a Yusei Kikuchi or, or someone else to help stabilize the rotation. Because when I look at that rotation, I, I see three clear big league starters and one guy that I think shows flashes of it in Adbert Alzali. I'm curious if you share some of my faith that Alzali could possibly turn the corner, find that consistent third pitch and, and maybe take all the best parts of what he has done as a big league pitcher and sew it all together over the course of one season in the rotation. I don't know if I would definitely say yes. I think he can do it or I think he will do it. I think they have three guys that have a chance to do it. Well, first of all, a fourth guy, Alec Mills, you add him into the rotation and now you're just adding another contact guy. I really like what Alec Mills does when he's locked in and, and he's, and he's at his best. Because he's a soft contact guy, but that's just that just puts even more pressure on the defense. Maybe his best role on this team is as a swing man and a spot starter. But that said, you have three guys, in my opinion, that you don't really you, you can hope that they are starters. And if not, they're really quality, likely multi-inning bullpen arms. And that's Alzali, Justin Steele, and Keegan Thompson. I really liked what I saw from uh Steele at the end of the year. Uh, he started to really figure it out. Uh, I think he's in it, but I think we saw something similar uh, from Alzali. So I don't want to jump the gun on, on steel because what we saw from Alzali after I think a rough first or second start, first couple starts, he really locked in and it, it looked like he was taking a step forward, step forward, step forward. And then he hit a really rough patch with the, with the lefties, right? He He, he was just getting hammered by lefties and it was, it was bad. It was to the point where every single time a lefty came up there, he was just getting hammered. Uh, so there, there are certain things that they're working on with him. Uh, four seamer, he needs to locate it a little bit better. That's one option. He's, he's he really switched to a two seam slider guy, right? Uh, and and that worked really well for him, especially against righties. But he either needs to figure out the changeup. He needs to really locate that four seamer, or even use the curveball a little bit more. So he's got all these different pitches. And at certain times, some of them have been plus plus like sometimes he flashes like this great change up. And I've seen his fastball and curveball when they're when they're working, they're really good pitches. But he just settled into this slider two seam arsenal that just is can be devastating at times. And it's one of the best. It was one of the best sliders in the game at a certain point last year when it's really working. It's just nasty. And Steele is a north-south guy. He's got that curveball four-seamer, but he also has a changeup and and uh, and a sinker. So he can he can do something similar where he can if he can somehow mix these. He has these games where it's like twelve ground ball outs and only two strikeouts, and then he'll have a game where it's like he can only go four innings because he struck out ten guys and got a ton of swing and miss. If he can put that together. 
to where he's getting like the first three, four innings. It's a bunch of ground balls. And then it's like, okay, just air it out for the last three innings. And he turns into this seven inning pitcher. That would be, I mean, that's what every, you know, pitching coach dreams of, right? This guy putting it together and you started to see flashes of it coming together at the end of last year. And Keegan Thompson, once he was healthy, he, he really started to figure some things out too. I think ultimately in the end, you have to just kind of lean towards these guys being really good relievers, but that's, those are great plant backup plans to have. I mean, multi-inning relievers are worth so much in today's game, right? The way the game is, is played and the Cubs are really changing the way they think about things. They're not all that you talked to Jed Hoyer two, three years ago, and he was, he'd always talk about, I still think it's a seven inning guy, seven, eight, nine inning guy. You want that guy. He's starting to change a little bit. David Ross's philosophies, are, they're embracing this. It's not that they're saying, I don't want seven in guys. I think they just realize it's really hard to develop those guys. It's really hard to pay. you. Like Those guys are really expensive. And so if you can win in another way, maybe Alzali, maybe Alzali and Steele are a real nice combo that eat a bunch of innings. Maybe uh, maybe, maybe Alzali is just like a multi-inning reliever that pitches 120 innings or something. Can you... Can you do that? Do you have a manager in David Ross that really knows how to do that and utilize that guy? I mean, that'd be great if you could do that, but I won't rule out any of them, but I, especially Alzali, because I see how hard he works and I see the talent uh, as starters. I think all three of them have a chance. I'd still bet multi-inning reliever on on all of them. Uh, pro, I think Alzali's out of options and Steele and Thompson both have options. So my guess is, you either see Alzali in the rotation to start the season or out of the bullpen to start the season, however spring training works out. And then uh, Thompson and Steele get stretched out in the minors unless they just need them in the bullpen for some reason or they're just so good come uh, come spring training that they're just like, we have to have these guys up in the big leagues. Uh, but I think that's that's your most likely scenario with Alzali, a, a good bet to be in the rotation. And there's one other player that could make a pretty big impact who's not factored into those projections. Again, they gave, if you see the Cubs as the bottom five team on fan graphs by war, it's because Brennan Davis doesn't appear in the projections right now. And if, if he came up and hit right away, he's an impact player. I think the concern I would have, it's something Keith and I have talked about on this podcast a lot, is that the gap right now between AAA and the big leagues is huge. And Brennan Davis didn't spend that much time in the PCL, even though he more than held his own. He played really well during that 15-game stretch there. So where do you think the expectations are for Davis and his arrival and how much playing time he ends up getting at the big league level in 2022? The fan expectation or realistic <laughs> expectations? I, honestly, a little, a little realistic. Yeah, honestly, I don't think fans are too insane at the moment right now about that. Just because I, I think uh, a lot of it, the, the prospect hype kind of stopped once they once they got a taste of winning. They just they're just like, no, I want to win. I don't want to stop talking about prospects. Uh, <laughs> but Brennan Davis, I think what's real, it's the Cubs do a really good job of getting guys up and having them impact right away. But they, they sometimes do suffer that dip pretty, uh, you know, whether it lasts a month or two. But I I expect to see him by the mid, by midseason. And my biggest question is, can he lower the strikeout rate? He's answered every question that he's been in the minors, right? He's I mean, if you I'm sure Keith has said this, too, but. If you remember when he was drafted, when I talked to scouts about him, it was just this guy's really talented. It's going to be a slow burn on offense. It's going to take a long time for this to click. If it clicks, it'll be great. All those scouts, two months later, after he played a little bit, they're like, okay, it clicked much quicker than we expected. 
they all were shocked at how quickly it, it, I mean, even quicker than the Cubs expected. They made some slight tweaks to his swing. It's a little shorter. Uh, he, he has these long levers that can lead to a lot of swing and miss, but he's, he's shortened up that swing to the point where, uh, it's basically like, I think what you'll see is he'll go, he'll get out of rhythm and you'll see the strikeouts pile up, but then he'll go in these, he'll, he'll get locked in and then it'll be like a month with a low strikeout rate. So can he get it to the point where that is like three or four months of a six month season and those bad, uh, you know, the, we, we, you really shorten up those low moments. It's kind of like, you know, if you want to think about Ian Happ. Right. When Ian Happ's locked in, he's a he's he's an MVP candidate. But when he's bad, he's awful. Right. And we've seen it. We saw it. I mean, just look at 2020. He was an MVP candidate after the first month of that 60 game season. And he was pretty rough in September. Uh, so and, and he was rough almost all of last year. And then when he comes back healthy and 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 kind of dominated the second half or the post uh, trade deadline, if I remember correctly. So, I mean, I think what you want to see from Brennan Davis is I think realistic expectations is, yeah, he could be a rookie of the year candidate if he gets up early enough. Uh, but I, I wouldn't put him into instant superstar status. It's really hard when you have that type of swing and miss. So I think there will be an adjustment adjustment phase. And, but like I said, this guy, every single time he seems to be able to make the adjustment and, and take to the coaching and, and that's another aspect. The Cubs have a really highly thought of new hitting coach here. Greg Brown was is just lauded lauded for his time in Tampa Bay as their minor league hitting coordinator. So if he comes up and continues to work with this guy, who knows? Who knows? I I have high hopes for him. I you know, power hitting center fielders are rare. So so let's see what he can do. And and you want to see a guy like him? Sounds by every account and from the moments I've I haven't had a lot of time to talk to him but you know maybe a total of an hour over multiple interviews seems like a really good kid with his head uh, on his shoulders and and it sounds like uh he's already trying to take a leadership role with the other prospects so it, it he's an exciting prospect uh I hope Cubs fans are are you know happy uh, to have him and and looking forward to him arriving sometime this summer yeah center field is all Brendan Davis is as soon as he is ready for that opportunity in the big leagues. Sahadev, thank you so much for taking time to join me today. I really appreciate your insight. Of course. Thanks for having me, Derek. Take care. He is Sahadev Sharma, one of our Cubs beat writers, also one of the hosts of On to Waveland, our Cubs podcast. This is a team that has, frankly, a much more optimistic outlook about 2022 than it would have had back in October. And now we close things out by taking a trip to Cincinnati and to break down the Reds. We bring on our Reds beat writer here at The Athletic. He is C. Trent Rosecrans. Trent, thank you for joining me today. Oh, not a problem. Anytime. So the Reds are in an interesting spot because like two off-seasons ago, they were off-season winners on paper. They were spending money. They were doing things that the Reds don't always do. And it seems like the music stopped maybe a little sooner than people expected. And they're kind of in the hey, we got to be careful. We can't spend more money. And uh, hey, you know, Wade Miley, those innings that he's chewing up, it's too rich for our blood. All that being said, I think this division is built in a way that kind of favors them to be able to sit around and, and just kind of see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I don't see anybody on paper running away with this division. Um, I see the gap widening between maybe the Reds and those other teams and not because they've gotten so much better 
but because you know the Reds, and it's not like a huge chasm, um, but it is. They are those other teams are inching away as the Reds let go um, their best starter from a year ago and the uh, a two time Gold Glove winner at maybe the most important defensive position on the field. Exactly. This is. I mean, this is a team that once we get to the rest of the offseason, whenever that actually is, really has one key player that they will likely have lost in free agency, Nick Castellanos, right? It seems like he's going to get the, the years and money that the Reds are unwilling to commit to another player right now. Do they actually go out in free agency and replace him with someone else for a one-year, two-year deal and kind of shop in the bargain bin? Or do they just run it back and let Tyler Naquin have another 500-plus plate appearances. You know, I, I think that's more possible than the other, um, than, than, you know, going out on free agency and, and spending stuff. I think they might look for a Tyler Naquin type. You know, those guys are a lot cheaper and a lot easier to find. And the other part is I think there's going to be a run on those guys uh, once the lockout ends because those guys are going to want to get get signed somewhere early and and find a place to go because uh spring training sh- will be starting up relatively soon after that um after those floodgates open uh, but i don't see them going out and getting schwarber or conforto yeah yeah may- maybe if one of those guys wants to do it on a make good uh but woo, if you have schwarber and winker in the same outfield uh, that's saying something. Um, but you know, you, you could do some other things. I, maybe I think Schwarber's, you know, you could, you could look at guys who want to do make good contracts or, you know, short term, I'm going to put up some big numbers like Castellanos did at great American ballpark. You know, Nick Castellanos has always been a good hitter, but his power numbers were, you know, you look at his numbers at Great American and, you know, his home and away splits last year, Nick Castellanos, that is, he hit 359, 407, 702 with 23 home runs in 69 games, uh, 295, 290 plate appearances at Great American Ballpark. In 69 games, 68 starts, 295 plate appearances. So five plate appearance differences. Um, he hit 260. Uh, 316, 454. I mean, that's a, it's, you know, 350 ish OPS difference. Yeah. Home and road. Um, you know, is TOPS plus 134, uh, at, at, at home and 67 away. Um, so, you know, that is something to keep an eye on. And, and maybe that's something that the Reds do. Tell other tell free agents or you know minor league free agent types uh, with an invite to big league camp. You know those that's something that this ballpark can do, and it's going to make Nick Castellanos quite a bit of money. Yeah, absolutely a dream landing spot, and he took advantage of it during his time there for sure. I mean, I think this is a team that does have the versatility, thanks to the lack of star power at so many spots. They can afford to just wait it out, see who's there later on, and just 
take their chance and say, yep, we got the ballpark, we're good. They could get a bounce back from someone like Mike Moustakis. I mean, Universal DH actually, I think, helps the Reds just based on some of the, the crowding they do have at some spots. Like a roster that has Eugenio Suarez and Mike Moustakis and Joey Votto on it kind of needs a DH. That makes a lot of sense because then you're not playing Moustakis at second base or playing Suarez at shortstop in some effort to make all the pieces fit. Right. And, you know, you give Joey Votto some days off. You you have all these kind of moves you can make and you don't have to, you know, they, they kind of tetris the lineup last year and defensive lineup last year to, to shoehorn um, Jonathan India in the lineup. And that was something that David Bell really wanted to do. That's why Eugenio Suarez was at, at shortstop was for Jonathan India. And because they didn't feel great about what their shortstop options were, um, but also they saw Jonathan India and are like, this kid needs to play. And, uh, sure enough, that was true. Uh, he, he, he turned it around. So he's entrenched at that second base spot. You have two third basemen making a lot of money without a lot of production and Eugenio Suarez and Mike Moustakis. And, and you've got to hope to get some bounce back from both of those guys. Um, and then also, yeah, uh, so that's what you have. You can mix them in. Moose at first. Some Tyler Stevenson, maybe some DHing as well, because this is your catcher that you let Tucker Barnhart go because Tyler Stevenson really showed that he's ready. And you know, T- Tucker Barnhart is a really good defensive catcher, but at seven million, that's a backup catcher. He's going to be your backup because Tyler Stevenson has shown that he's taken enough steps with all those duties as a catcher to justify putting that bat in the lineup every day. I think the big question for the Reds is, will they trade some of their starting pitching? Because there are plenty of teams out there that have playoff aspirations that just don't have enough of it. And the Reds actually... I think are built more like a playoff pitching staff as they're currently constructed. They've got a few interesting young guys they could press into more prominent roles if it's about saving money and finding talent later on. So you look at Luis Castillo, you look at Sonny Gray. I think those are the two guys that you you hear about or see rumors about all the time. Who is most likely to be traded out of this rotation if they are going to make a deal? I think Sonny Gray. Older, cost-controlled. Uh, you're not... <laughs> You know, Sonny Gray can still be an all-star caliber pitcher. Luis Castillo, I don't think this team thinks he's reached his ceiling yet. And the offers they've gotten the last couple of years are for teams saying, oh, this is what he has been, these flashes of brilliance. And the Reds really believe that this is the guy that if you are, like, you know, last year, they're still holding on. If you had a one-game playoff, I don't care who it's against. If you have Luis Castillo on the mound, you've got a chance. He's that one type in a playoff series. You know, he may not be a one all year. Um, He hasn't shown that consistency, but he can be as good as anybody in the game on any given night. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. You want that difference maker, especially if you're going to get a little less experience by moving gray, by turning to... Hunter Green or Nick Lodolo or obviously guys like Vladimir Gutierrez and and Reaver San Martin. We saw them at the end of the year. If you're leaning on those guys for more innings, eventually you're going to need that difference maker because I think the best case outcome, and you can correct me if you think I'm way off on this, the best case outcome for the 2022 Reds probably is a wild card. I, I don't think the Brewers and Cardinals are going to collapse enough for the Reds to win the division 
I don't think the Pirates are going to do enough damage to make it a total just 85 games gets it done sort of scenario. So it seems like they're sort of playing the middle. Is that a is that a fair assessment of this team? Like dangerous because they could get there and and maybe they're the kind of team that will add some things once we get to the trade deadline if things break a certain way. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And that's that's kind of where you you fall and that's what you hope that all that can happen and um and 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 you can get there in the playoffs and if you have a Luis Castillo and a Tyler Malley, I mean, Tyler Malley's a guy that I don't think a lot of people know just how good Tyler Malley is. Um, and, and like, if, if I'm another team, that's who I'm maybe calling about, but I, I, I feel that the reds probably have him graded. Like it would take a haul, not quite the um, haul that it would take to get Luis Castillo, but it would take a haul. Um, and I'm trying to remember, I did a uh, ranking the Reds trade pieces piece uh, not too long ago, um, sometime during the lockout. And so I guess that was in December. And I'm pretty sure I had Mally ahead of Gray because I, I think with his youth, um, you know, the money, uh, injury history, all that, he's a guy that especially, you know, kind of the flip side of Castellanos, get him out of Great American Ballpark. And you've got one heck of a pitcher. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I mean, a deep arsenal of pitches and great command is what he's always had. But I think he's also seen a little uptick in velocity compared to where he was earlier in his career, too. And that that makes Mally even more interesting. So I'm with you. I think if, if you if, if I were a rival GM trying to rank them and trying to go after them, I'd go after Mally before Gray. I'd be happy to get Sonny Gray, though, too. If I needed yeah. pitching, if I'm if I'm the Minnesota Twins and I'm like, hey, I got a position core that's actually like good and we're in the AL Central but my pitching's awful like Sonny Gray fits really well there and I'd give up some young talent to get him but I, if I had my choice of, of all of them I'm with you in terms of the order with Castillo being at the top Mally being second and Gray being third right but like I mean how many and, and it's kind of what you said how many teams can you say that their third starter that you would trade for would be someone that a contender would be like yeah we'll take him that's great that helps us Short list for sure. I, I saw uh, Will Salmon had a, a piece. We talked to him a little earlier in the show trying to sort out some trades uh, for the Brewers. And every proposal was either you know, trading Woodruff with stuff or even Josh Hader out of the bullpen. That's the strength of that team in a way where they don't have the replacements quite the way the Reds do. And I think that's a pretty big problem. But the Reds are in this unique position of having the thing that everybody else needs and being positioned to still do what they want to do even if they execute a trade like that. Correct. Uh, I, I'm with you 100%. He is our Reds beat writer, C. Trent Rosecrans, on Twitter, at C. Trent. Trent, thank you so much for making time today. Yeah, anytime. Thanks a lot. That is going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Baseball Show. For all of your MLB lockout coverage and team coverage and speculation needs, Check out The Athletic, theathletic.com slash baseball show gets you 33% off a subscription. We are back with you on Monday. Have a great weekend.